Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, we're going to talk about pain. I became wildly familiar with a new language, and that's the language of pain. You have acute pain, chronic pain, neuropathic pain, throbbing pain, tingling, pulsing, burning, and the worst of all is severe pain caused by the slightest touch. We explore an entirely new approach to pain treatment that could offer relief to suffering patients. I see us at the first stage in humans of a new generation of pain medications. This is a very pivotal advance. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Hal Crenshaw. I am 67 years old. When I was 48 years old, I picked up a wooden beam and it caused excruciating back pain. So that would have been 19 years ago. I saw uh, orthopedic doctors and I did lots of physical therapy. After about two months, what had been acute pain turned into much more chronic pain. Over a course of two years, it developed into neuropathic pain. It was in my feet, primarily my feet burned. And then the pain actually started to gradually progress up my body. It was an ascending pain. It got my ankles, my thighs, it moved into my shoulders and hands. It worked down my legs, and that was the start of a very, very long journey. The journey involved going to maybe 20 different doctors at some of the top hospitals in America. When this happened, I was by profession a lawyer and a banker. I was right in the middle of my career, had three young daughters, and this happened. And it quickly became life-changing. I was medicated. I was on morphine drugs. I was on gabapentin and Lyrica and Cymbalta. They were antidepressants that they had found help with nerve pain. I found no relief. Everything that was given to me had no effect on the pain whatsoever. I would sleep a lot. My wife put a pillow on the door that said, baby sleeping. And for about two years, I was Rip Van Winkle. And I slept through daughter's graduations. I was really unable to function on any level. And the doctors I saw most often had no concept. It just was not well known what was happening with this neuropathic pain. So at the time that I was running from doctor to doctor and from physical therapy to physical therapy, I was trying so hard 
to get back to what my earlier normal had been. I spent endless hours in swimming pools. I had been very active athlete. I would try and every time I would exercise, it would send me into a really, really dark, bad place with the pain. And I started to think that it was mental and I was crazy. I saw several psychologists and one psychiatrist, and it was like, well, this guy's middle-aged. He's uh, running hard. He's, you know, that kind of type A. So therefore, he's just basically having a breakdown, kind of a nervous breakdown. After a while, I started to believe it. I think my family started to believe it, but it never made any sense to me because everything was triggered by a back injury. That's what I went back to over and over again. There's something going on here that we just cannot see. We can't put our fingers on it all. Over a period of time, the pain really became so intense that there were times I thought I couldn't live with it. My feet were so on fire, they were, they were bright red, and I would have a hard time walking. I had to relax the back chair that I put on our back porch, and I slept in it a lot. I couldn't wear shoes. I became wildly familiar with a new language, and that's the language of pain. You have acute pain, chronic pain, neuropathic pain, lancinating pain. That's a really bad one. That's like getting stabbed with an ice pick. Throbbing pain, tingling, pulsing, burning. And the worst of all is severe pain caused by the slightest touch. At the height of my pain journey, my wife would inadvertently roll over in the middle of the night and barely brush against me. And I would come out of the bed from a deep, deep sleep, screaming at the top of my lungs. But I found out that I could not get relief from medication. The really hard part of all this with neuropathic pain is that it's really almost impossible to treat. I started to meditate and I went into a very, very deep place of meditation because when my pains at worse, I would just have to get in a fetal position and stay there sometime for hours. And out of that, I started to write down poetry. And I went back to college and, and got an MFA in, in poetry. And I just found other ways to cope. I think what pain does for most people, it drives them into a very interior place. I write poetry. I spend lots of time with my family, my immediate family, and my children and grandchildren, my world in so many ways by necessity became smaller, but the interior world became much, much bigger. And so I treat it that way. I do everything I can to avoid stressors. 
I don't overexercise. I keep myself out of social situations that could be stressful. I continue to take some medicines, some of the older antidepressants, because they have an effect on calming the hyperactive nerves, but I don't really take much medicine. I just live. And then when the pain shows up, I give myself permission and I just stay with it. I have got the knowledge now that it will lift. And if you stay in the present, then you're pretty much fine no matter how bad the pain is. If you go ahead in your mind until tomorrow, the pain can become a monster that cannot be killed. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. I'm joined now by Dr. Stephen Waxman. He's director of the Center for Neuroscience and Regeneration Research at Yale University. He's here to talk about a new study published in the journal that describes an entirely new approach to pain treatment. Dr. Waxman, what's currently in our arsenal and why are we hoping for a new class of pain medications? Look, we have the opiates, we have NSAIDs, we have GABAoid drugs, but if you just go into the neurologist's office or walk through the wards of a hospital, you'll see that there's an immense unmet need in terms of neuropathic pain and inflammatory pain. Those drugs are sometimes effective, but they're not fully effective. They carry substantial side effects. And there's a desperate need for the development of new, more effective, non-addictive pain therapies. The opiates are a real problem for a lot of people. The opioids are an important class of drugs, but they cause GI side effects. At high doses, they blunt mentation. And in some forms of pain, they're only partially effective, and they have addictive potential. I don't have to talk to you about the opiate crisis. So that leaves this immense need for another class of drugs that does not have the central nervous system uh, adverse side effects and does not uh, have addictive potential. And that's where this particular study comes in because it's an entirely new mechanism of action, an entirely new class of drugs that do not have an effect on the central nervous system. Let's talk about this study, what these medications do and how it's different. One of the bastions of neurophysiology is that sodium channels, tiny molecular batteries, are necessary for the production of nerve impulses in neurons, in muscle, and including in the pain-signaling peripheral neurons that innervate our body. The importance of this advance is that this is a study on a drug that targets a sodium channel that is not present in the heart and is not present within the, the central nervous system, the brain. What happened as the molecular revolution rolled in is that it became clear that there is not just one type of sodium channel, but many types. And as it became clear that there were more than one type of sodium channel, the question arose, 
might there be a sodium channel or several sodium channels that were important for the firing, the functioning of peripheral pain-sensing neurons, but did not have a, a significant role in the heart or the central nervous system. And this was a holy grail. And it turned out that there are three sodium channels that meet the criteria for being peripheral sodium channels, NAV1.7, NAV1.8, and NAV1.9. NAV1.8 is the target of the study that we're talking about. NAV1.8 produces the majority, 70% of the sodium current that produces nerve impulses in pain signaling neurons. The bottom line is that NAV1.8 drives repetitive firing in pain signaling neurons, and it is the target of the drug that's being studied in this uh, investigation. So let's talk about how this study worked exactly. Basically, this was a study of uh, postoperative pain, pain after bunionectomy and after abdominoplasty, and there was a significant reduction, not a total abolition, but a significant reduction in pain in patients who were treated with this particular NAV1.8 blocker. With this peripheral system, it's a huge difference where you're stopping the pain. You're stopping the pain as close as you can to the source in the peripheral nerves. That's what happens in the dentist's office. When you receive lidocaine or novocaine in the dentist's office, there is localized block, but of all the sodium channels. And so there's numbness, there is temporary weakness, in addition to abolition of pain. NAV1.8 is predominantly produced in pain signaling neurons. So by blocking NAV1.8, you block pain signaling and you leave other modalities of uh, sensory signaling intact. Your patient, Hal Crenshaw, he's run the gamut on the kinds of pain he has, chronic pain. Is there hope for patients like Hal Crenshaw and others who suffer and have real trouble finding effective treatment or treatment that doesn't derail them completely. Hal and Hal's illness really are exemplary. Hal has chronic pain from peripheral neuropathy, and he has uh, received care at some of the best medical centers in the country. He's seen outstanding pain specialists and outstanding neurologists. And at the moment, there's very little that can be offered to Hal to really effectively reduce his pain. My hope and my expectation is that sometime in the future, we will be able to help people like Hal. We'll have a new class of pain medications that target peripheral sodium channels like NAV1.8, and I believe we will be able to achieve substantial pain reduction in people like Hal but I just can't say how long it's going to take. When I spoke to Alan Roper, our deputy editor at New England Journal, one of our deputy editors, he's skeptical about chronic pain and other types of pain, neuropathic pain, being treated with this method because he says that once this pain gets in the CNS, that it gets reorganized and it's no longer part of the sodium channel periphery. So can you speak to that? Alan is, is correct. We do know in animal models, nerve injury, and in animal models of diabetic painful neuropathy, 
that although the pain originates in the hyperexcitability, the abnormal firing bop, 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 of peripheral pain signaling neurons, we know there are secondary changes in the spinal cord and brain, which also become hyperexcitable. And the question is, to what degree do those become dominant versus they just uh, modulate the pain that still is produced by the periphery? And many of us believe that the peripheral generation of inappropriate firing, bop, 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 coming from peripheral pain signaling neurons, is causative of chronic pain. So my hope is that by targeting peripheral sodium channels, one can calm those uh, peripheral neurons and reduce pain. There are no guarantees. Research does need to be done. Now, I can tell you, in a small number of patients who we've studied, these are patients with chronic pain. We see reorganization of pain signaling in the brain, but we have found that silencing the peripheral neurons still is effective in reducing pain, and we found that when we do that, the pattern of brain activation returns to normal. Uh, those are very early, very tiny studies, small numbers of patients, but they, they encourage me. And from my point of view, the major unmet need is chronic pain neuropathic pain, inflammatory pain, pain from chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, diabetic painful neuropathy, neuropathic pain that comes after shingles, neuropathic pain from neuromas, that's peripheral nerve injury. All of these represent immense pressing needs, and uh, there's good reason to believe that this approach will be effective there. Where this work is going, clearly there's a need for replication, and I understand that's going on. There's a need to study other indications, neuropathic pain, so painful diabetic neuropathy, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, post-shingles neuralgia, pain after traumatic nerve injury. Each of these uh, are pressing needs. I expect that there will be other NAV1.8 sodium channel blockers that are studied, and in parallel with that, there may be gene therapy approaches, CRISPR, or RNA editing approaches multiple approaches to target the NAV1.8 sodium channel, and possibly also uh, increased emphasis on targeting the NAV1.7 sodium channel and the NAV1.9 sodium channel. So you've been working on these sodium channel blockers for quite some time. We've known about them. So what changed and, and where are we now? You're absolutely correct. We've been working on the molecular pathophysiology, and uh, we've known about the importance of NAV1.7, NAV1.8, NAV1.9, the trio of peripheral sodium channels. We've known about their crucial role in pain signaling for many years. What's important now is that here we have a clinical study in humans that shows that you can target one of these peripheral sodium channels and reduce pain in human subjects without uh, adverse side effects. In my view, it's like the very first stage of the development of the statins. And the second and third generation statins were more effective than the first generation statins. I see us at the first stage in humans of a new generation of pain medications, but this is a very pivotal advance. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Waxman. Glad to be here. Dr. Stephen Waxman is director of the Center for Neuroscience and Regeneration Research at Yale University. 
This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, narcolepsy. It's much more than a sleep disorder. I started to get sleepy during class and I would go to the bathroom to wake myself up. I was having trouble driving just even 15 minutes to school in the morning. There was one morning I woke up in the law school parking lot and I didn't remember getting there. And that really scared me. So that's when I thought maybe there's something wrong with my sleep. It was the morning, like this is the time you should be most awake. New treatment can reverse symptoms and could lead the way to treat sleep problems of all kinds. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gopin.